Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 96, Prevalence and Characteristics Associated with Post-COVID-19 Condition Among Non-Hospitalized Adolescents and Young Adults. This was published in JAMA Network Open in 2023, just a short while ago. So I've been not avoiding this topic, but I have been overall underwhelmed by the quality of research in this area, and so I've not had a whole lot to say about it. That is beginning to change. There's been a lot of investment in uh, long COVID or post-acute COVID conditions. And I think that we've made a lot of progress in understanding more about it. And this paper here really, really, really surprised me. But I think that it's one that is incredibly important. And anyone who wants to do research or is interested in this area needs to grapple with what they found here. So that's what I intend to do today. I don't know that long COVID needs much of an introduction. You know, we, they call it post-COVID-19 condition in this, and that's the World Health Organization definition, but I'm just going to call it long COVID because that's what most people say. And, and this has been very hard to pin down because it seems like a lot of people have persistent symptoms after they have COVID-19. We started noticing that early on in the pandemic. The long haulers movement kind of raised visibility and let people know that this was happening. And since then, it's been talked about quite a lot in the lay press. And there's been a lot of research attention to this as well. Now, there are people who have COVID-19 who develop things like interstitial lung disease because they had prolonged hospitalizations or they develop LV dysfunction because they had an arrest. I don't think of those as this long COVID condition. And I don't think you would either if we we're being straightforward about this because we've always seen this for people who had flu or who had rhinovirus and had a horrible hospitalization. And we didn't call it post-rhinovirus or long rhinovirus. We called it a person who had an unfortunate hospitalization and had developed sequelae from a respiratory viral infection. So when, when I'm talking about long COVID in this podcast, I want to talk about what most people mean, which is this syndrome of fatigue, shortness of breath, brain fog, general malaise that seems to persist for months after people get uh, COVID-19. The prevalence of this has been reported at pretty high rates. Somewhere between 32 and 62% is what the authors cite in this paper. And I think that's about what I've seen in the lay press. People saying that half of the population will be afflicted by long COVID and it's going to destroy society, which just really hasn't panned out. And I think that this paper will give some context for perhaps why. There's also another condition called post-infectious fatigue syndrome, which is more related just to the fatigue symptoms. There's some case definitions for this as well. I don't want to get too much into nuance of both, but they were both evaluated in this paper. Now, the goal of this project was to de determine the prevalence of post-COVID conditions um, or long COVID among people who had developed SARS-CoV-2 and to determine the risk of, of having a persist at six months. Very useful. And they did some really interesting things is why I think it's worth talking about this study. Now, the first thing is that this was a pro prospective study. They weren't looking backwards, they're looking forwards, and they did a pretty rigorous design. The second thing is that they looked at young adults who were testing positive um, and negative for COVID-19. So this is the first study that looked at a, a younger cohort, which I think is very interesting. And then they had a prospective follow-up um, at six and 12 months, which is great. That's exactly when I would have wanted to have the follow-up. So let me tell you a little bit about how they did this. So they enrolled people who were from 20 to 25 years of age. This was done, conducted in Norway. And it was based on um, all the testing that had occurred in that country. They had 151,000 participants who are 12 to 25 who were living in Southeast Norway who underwent PCR testing for SARS-CoV-2. So it's a huge sample and obviously not going to investigate all of them. 
they wound up finding 6,000 positive cases. And from them, a lot of them wound up being excluded because they didn't have uh, data available. They sent out invitations to almost 2,000 of the people who had tested positive for COVID. 404 agreed to participate in the study. Um, and of those, 382 were available for six-month analysis. So kind of a pretty cool thing. They have 400 people who were tested positive for COVID and they followed them afterwards. Now they also recruited controls. This is very interesting. So most people tested negative, 145,000. They invited a subset of them, about 500 or so, to participate in the study as well. 105 wound up consenting, and 85 of those were available uh, at, for, at six months for analysis. So really interesting. They essentially had people who tested positive for COVID and people who tested negative for COVID, and they enrolled them in this study. Now, people who were in the, the tested negative group and developed COVID were excluded from analyses, which, which I think makes sense. Like, we're trying to test people who didn't have COVID, and if they develop it, that kind of skews your results a little bit. There's some methodologic reasons that that may be problematic. This is kind of a per protocol design, I suppose, but I, I think that it's the right decision. Now, before I go on, I want to talk about the first problem that I identified here. And I think this is a really big problem. These people tested negative for COVID-19, right? Now, a lot of them were tested, being tested for COVID-19 because they had acute infectious symptoms. Some of them probably had influenza. Maybe some of them had rhinovirus. Maybe some of them just had some sort of bacterial infection that was mimicking a viral infection, whatever. The point is that not all of them fell into that group. Others of the people who were tested, tested negative, were asymptomatic. They were being tested because there were close contacts of people who had COVID-19. It's really worth noting that someone who goes to the doctor who has no symptoms and wants to get tested for COVID-19 is quite a bit different from someone who goes to the doctor with a ton of symptoms and is being tested for COVID-19. I'll talk about that later when we get into the supplementary results, but it, it's a big problem for this study. Now, patients were all in, uh, included in a one-day investigational program at their study center. This was really cool. They drug these people down. They had a clinical interview. They had a complete physical. They did vital signs. They took a ton of blood and a ton of testing for immune issues. Uh, and they completed an enormous volume of questionnaires. I think that there was uh, quite a lot of resiliency in this population just to get through all the stuff that these uh, researchers subjected them to. I'll talk about some of those questionnaires and the more relevant ones once we get to the results. Now, the next thing is that they defined COVID-19 or post-COVID, long COVID, using this World Health Organization definition. And boy, I, this is a problem. I, I didn't realize quite how ridiculous this was. So this World Health Organization definition of long COVID, they, they got together a bunch of experts in the field and they did one of these Delphi panels. And this is what they came up with. Now, the definition of the post-COVID-19 condition is, and I quote, Post-COVID-19 condition occurs in individuals with a history of probable or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection, usually three months from the onset of COVID-19, with symptoms that last for at least two months and cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. Common symptoms include fatigue, shortness of breath, and cognitive dysfunction. Other symptoms are listed in the appendix um, and generally have an impact on everyday functioning. Symptoms might be new onset after initial recovery from an acute COVID-19 episode or persist from the initial illness. Symptoms might also fluctuate or relapse over time. A separate def definition might be applicable for children. Notes. There is no minimum number of symptoms required for the diagnosis. Symptoms involving different organ systems and clusters have been described. End quote. Ooh-wee, man. So basically anything that happens to you after COVID-19 probably could qualify for you for having the long COVID condition. This is just really not very rigorous in my opinion. 
they have a appendix where they list a bunch of other symptoms and it's insane. There's hundreds of symptoms that are in the appendix. I don't think that that's reasonable to think that a condition would just cause all the symptoms imaginable. And that, that seems to be where the World Health Organization went with this. I, I, I would have much preferred that they settled on a, a definition with seven or eight pathognomonic symptoms and required multiple or something along those lines. The way this reads, it's just if you feel bad post-COVID-19, you meet their definition. So I think this is a big problem. And I, I hope someone revisits this and, and, and just puts together a little bit tighter of a definition of what uh, post-COVID condition means. Now, they also invest, investigate a number of sort of risk factors that they had hypotheses for, and, and it was really impressive. It was obviously, SARS-CoV-2 status, positive versus negative, is sure their primary variable of interest, but they also looked at a ton of background and constitutional factors, uh, characteristics about when people were observed, a bunch of organ function issues, tons of immunologic markers, um, clinical symptoms, psychological traits, social behavior markers, et cetera. They, they, they did, this is the most comprehensive data collection study that I've read in a very long time. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the power of this study. It was powered at an 80% detected relative risk of 1.5. I got to say, I think that's underpowered. I mean, I, I think that this is a large study, but at the end of the day, I would care about a post-COVID condition relative risk of 1.25. I and mean, that would be a number that would matter to me. Now, the flip side, though, is that, that that's what I would care about. I would expect this to be a relatively small risk. And I think this study isn't quite strong enough to exclude a risk that would be meaningful to me. But the way this has been covered in the press and the way people talk about this, I mean, this study is grossly overpowered um, by the coverage that's you know, been afforded this condition. You know, people saying that half of people developed this who wouldn't have developed otherwise. I mean, this study was easily, easily, easily powered to detect the kind of risk that people have been ascribing to uh, post-COVID conditions. And so it's weird. I think this is underpowered to detect a difference that matters to me, but I think it is easily adequately powered to detect the kind of difference that people have been, have been talking about in, in the news. So I don't know. You can take that however you like. They also did their statistical analysis in SPSS, which is a huge limitation because I think SPSS is hot garbage, but that is just my own hang up and not a real problem with this paper. Now, we already talked about who got into the study, so let me tell you what they looked like. The majority were female, about 60-some percent. The age was evenly distributed from 12 to 25, give or take. Most people were of European ethnicity. About one in five had some comorbidity. And over 95% of people had not been immunized against COVID-19. That is kind of an astonishing number when you try and put this study in context, right? So who do you think would be more likely to develop post-COVID conditions? People who were unvaccinated or people who had been vaccinated? The answer is obviously people who were unvaccinated. The difference in your experience getting COVID having been vaccinated or having not been vaccinated is just enormous. I, it, it's one of these things where it, it's just night and day. And the idea that this would be more prevalent among people who had been vaccinated is completely ludicrous. Uh, post-vaccination, post-having had COVID-19, it seems obvious to me that you would be much less likely to develop bad sequelae, much less likely to be hospitalized, much less likely to develop the post-COVID condition. So. At baseline, just looking at the people who got into the study, I would be inclined to say that as we extend this going forward in a world where almost everyone has had COVID or been vaccinated, we would expect post-COVID conditions to be less common than they would be in this study. All right, so that's my background. What do we find? The number of people in the group that tested positive for COVID-19 who developed a post-COVID condition was 48.5%. That is a very high number. Almost half of the people in this study who tested positive for COVID-19 had post-COVID conditions at six months. That absolutely lines up with the way the press has been covering this and the way people have been talking about this. This is the kind of disease that is going to afflict half the population and you know, substantially change the world going forward. But wait a minute. 
among the people who tested negative for COVID-19 and did not develop COVID-19 over the six-month follow-up period, 47.1% of them met the criteria for post-COVID conditions. That is honestly an astonishing number. It, it, the point prevalence was the same. The confidence intervals overlapped. The risk difference was a, a percent and a half. I mean, this essentially says that there's no difference in the chance of developing long COVID, whether or not you had acute COVID-19 or did not have acute COVID-19. This is kind of an astonishing result. And given the overall methodologic rigor of this study, it, it really lays waste to a lot of the claims that have been made about this disease. Now, with regard to the post-infectious fatigue, fatigue syndrome, the point prevalence was 14% in the group that tested positive for COVID-19 and 8.2% in the group that did not. That's a 6% difference. And that completely jives with my priors. I would expect people who got COVID-19 to be worse off in the future. Um, I could see them having a little more fatigue. A 6% difference is right around where I would put it. So those are the headline results. I think that is pretty astonishing. But let me dive into the supplement and maybe pour a little bit of cold water on the people who have been saying that this clearly shows long COVID isn't a thing because I don't think that's what this paper shows. So if you go into the table S12, it's actually really interesting to look at the symptoms that these patients had at baseline. And remember what I said before, which is that people in the uh, tested negative group, some of them were asymptomatic. There are people who are asymptomatic and didn't have COVID-19 symptoms when they came to be tested, they'd just been exposed. All right, that makes sense. Well, let's talk about their symptoms. What kind of symptoms did everyone have? Among the people who tested positive for COVID-19, they had a lot of symptoms. 57% had fatigue, 37% said empty batteries, You know, 20% had fevers and chills, 50% had headaches. And the people who tested negative for, for COVID-19 had a lot lower incidence of these these uh, symptoms, but they still had them. 43% had fatigue, you know, 15 to 20% had various sim constitutional symptoms. Between two and 20% had um, general infectious symptoms. So they, they were less sick than the people who had COVID-19, which you would expect. Some of them probably had the flu or something like it. But the one domain where the people who tested negative were higher was in cognitive symptoms. People who tested negative for COVID-19 had more memory problems, they had more concentration problems, and they had more problems making decisions. That just blows my mind. I've had COVID-19 a couple times, and let me tell you, when I had COVID-19, I had a lot of memory problems, concentration problems, and problems making decisions. The idea that the control group who didn't have COVID-19, many of whom were asymptomatic, actually had more of these symptoms than the people who were actively infected with COVID-19 is kind of ridiculous to me. And it suggests to me that there's something special about the control group that led them to have a lot of these types of symptoms. What could that problem be? Well, if you go down to table S16, you start to get a sense for what panned out in this study. It's kind of astonishing. They tested all of the interleukins, it appears. They tested all of the various cytokines that I care about. All of them were stone cold normal, no difference between the two groups. But the things that were different were the clinical symptoms that we suggested and psychological traits. And these psychological traits really predicted the uh, likelihood that someone would have a, a post-COVID condition. And some of these are, you know, somewhat pejorative sounding. These are just these are just surveys. So I don't mean to be pejorative about this, but neuroticism, emotional awareness, worrying tendencies, body vigilance, principal or um, emotional maladjustment scores. All of these things correlated with developing the post-COVID condition. And that is really interesting because I have a I have a feeling that the control group was enriched for these kinds of traits. And I think they're enriched for these kinds of traits because a lot of them are asymptomatic seeking out testing for COVID-19. I don't know how much so, but I think that it's part of why the control group somewhat inexplicably 
had a similar level of symptoms to people who had active COVID-19. And I think it's one reason why there's actually no difference when you looked at six months. I would have expected there to be some difference, and so this doesn't really go along with my priors. All right, that's my major limitation, and the reason that I don't think this invalidates our concerns about post-COVID condition. I think these conditions are very real, and I think they are going to be a very real problem for a reasonably large slice of the population. But this study makes me think that that slice of the population is A, much, 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 much smaller than we've been saying, and B, probably has been with us for a long time. I'll touch base on that in a second, but let me first just say kudos to these authors for giving us a comparator and giving us a denominator. This entire area of research has been plagued with just really shoddy designs. And whenever you're studying a condition like this, you really need to say compared to what? The answer here was compared to people who tested negative for COVID-19. I think that's decent. And they have a denominator. What percent of the total people who we followed prospectively developed these conditions? That is what we need. I am done reading any study about post-COVID conditions that doesn't have a comparator and a denominator. I'm also done reading any post-vaccination, you know, complication study that doesn't have a comparator and denominator. We are too far into the pandemic. We've spent too many billions of dollars. There have been too many people doing research in these areas to still be doing shoddy case series that don't tell us anything about what's actually going on. And this study really highlights that. If we had just looked at the people who had COVID-19, they would have said 48.1% of people develop post-COVID conditions. The weirdness here is that people who didn't develop, didn't have COVID-19, 47% of them got post-COVID conditions. That comparator completely changes how you look at this study. And I'm done reading studies that don't do it. Now, it's fair to say that it looks like post-COVID conditions in this younger group of people with the limitations I described are, are just not that common as being caused by COVID-19. It, it just, I mean, that's just the conclusion of the study. And I haven't seen anyone poke a big enough hole in the study to say that they're wrong about that. Now, the flip side is that Post-COVID condition symptoms are very common. And as a rheumatologist, I'm constantly seeing people who have chronic fatigue, chronic pain. And let me tell you, these symptoms are very real and these conditions are very damaging for people. And we should have an enormous amount of compassion for folks who are suffering from this. And the number of people who are suffering from this, in this study, young people is 47%. There's an enormous amount of misery right now. And I think we should just acknowledge that. And I think a lot more compassion should be sent these people's way. And I am wholeheartedly behind the, the investment that governments and researchers are making in, in researching this. For a long time, I've been seeing these patients. And by a long time, I mean before the COVID-19 pandemic. The number of people who've had fibromyalgia or myelagic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, who come to me and said, this all started when I got infected with X. And that X is currently COVID, but four years ago, it was influenza or rhinovirus or something else. These people have been with us for a long time, and they're really, truly suffering, and they really, truly need more research, more compassion, and more options to try to get them better. So I'm all behind all the research that's happening. The last thing, though, is that we need to put this in its proper context. There is no reason to be giving people with post-COVID conditions full-dose anticoagulation and dual antiplatelet therapy, which is happening today. There is no reason to be giving them IVIG. There's no reason to be putting them on aggressive immunosuppressive regimens. Unless people have organic signs of a disease, we should not be treating post-COVID conditions with these sort of dangerous interventions. And I'll tell you that this is happening right now. I hear about it all the time. And we really honestly need to be careful about this. As a medical establishment, I think that we are understandably empathetic and, and compassionate for these people who are suffering with these conditions. And as researchers, there's just a lot of money in this area and a lot of people are, are chasing this cash. But look, at, at the end of the day, we need to be careful. There's a lot of quacks out there and there's a lot of grifters out there 
who see an opportunity to capitalize on something that everyone's concerned about and make a dollar. And you need to be making sure that you are not at any way supporting them or emphasizing what they're doing. So that's one of my other big frustrations throughout all this is hearing about the doctors who are willing to just throw things at post-COVID conditions in a very irresponsible way. If your patients have this, get them in a trial, get them in a study, and do the kinds of things that we've been doing for people who have post-infectious sequelae for a very long time. All right, that's the podcast for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.